2: Hello, one and all, and welcome to Book Off, the literary podcast with a difference, with me, Joe Haddo. It's a lovely spring day here in London today, and I'm sat at my home studio looking out onto a blue sky, dreaming of sitting outside in a pub garden and I hope that wherever you are, you're staying safe, you're staying well and you're staying indoors. If you're new to Book Off, welcome to you, it's great to have you here and if you're a regular listener, well welcome back and it's always lovely to have you with us and for your support. We're keen to spread the word of course about our little podcast so if you use iTunes or Apple Podcasts or even CastBox then please do leave a review or a rating for us as it helps more people. To find us, But without further ado, let's meet our two authors who are joining us for today's Book Off. My first guest is a best-selling young adult author and ambassador for Women's Aid. Her previous books include Am I Normal Yet? and The Places I've Cried in Public. And she's just published her new adult novel, Pretending, which we'll be talking about today. Welcome to Book Off, Holly Bourne.
3: Oh, thank you very much for having me.
2: Pleasure to have you here. Uh, and in fact, we are But a a stone's throw away uh, in terms of where we're both sitting, although we couldn't actually meet in person, of course. (laughs) Um, We'll come and talk about your book very shortly, but it's lovely to have you here. Uh, Also joining us on the podcast is a journalist and writer who is the fashion editor of The Times. She's about to publish her debut novel, The New Girl, which we'll hear about in just a moment as well. Hello to you, Harriet Walker.
4: Hello. Thanks for having me.
2: Lovely to have you as well. And uh, although we're not sat around a table sharing a coffee, uh, I'll introduce you anyway. Holly, this is Harriet. Harriet, this is Holly.
3: Hello. Hello there. This is so strange, <laughs> isn't it?
2: <laughs> um, I'm actually quite glad. Well, no, I'm not. I, I, I was going to say I'm quite glad we're not in the in the same room. That's not true. I wish we were. But um, considering what I'm wearing, Harriet, I'm quite glad because I think you'd have something to say <laughs> about this this current get-up that I'm sporting.
4: Well, you have no idea what I have on. My standards have really split since I had to leave the
2: office. <laughs> um, oh. How how are you both uh, coping in our lockdown? Holly, how have you found the last few weeks?
3: Um, it, it changes every day. <laughs> I don't know if you find there's some days where I'm like, oh, I'm acclimatising now. Aren't human beings adaptable? Isn't this amazing? And then... And then we go clap the NHS and I'm crying for an hour and a half face down on the carpet. Um, So, yeah, definitely a roller coaster. But um, I feel very lucky, you know, that I'm safe, that my job doesn't require having to go into a hospital. And just, yeah, very grateful for the people who are having a much harder time than I am. But I am still, yeah, catatonic quite often.
2: (laughs) Yes. And what about
3: you, Harriet?
4: Yeah, I think catatonic is the word. um, I'm also very lucky. I have it very comfortable, really, but um, it's been full on. I have a a small daughter who is quite busy a lot of the time, Um, so I'm sort of fitting her in around work, and my husband and I sort of pass like ships in the night. So, yeah, it's been quite intense, I would say.
2: Mm. And you, uh, did I read, uh, I think I saw an article that you wrote about that, actually, recently, didn't you, Harriet?
4: Yes, I did. Um, It was sort of to do with some of the stuff that's in my book, actually. It's just when you're, as a woman, when your home life and your career sort of clash or overlap or just run into each other and you can't quite figure out who you are anymore.
2: Mm. Well, we're going to... find out more about that book very shortly and in fact both of your new books which are absolutely brilliant and I loved reading them Um, and for anyone who hasn't heard the podcast before what we do is uh, a bit later on each of our guests is going to have the option the chance to pitch as a book that they absolutely love. Uh, It could be non-fiction book, it could be a classic, it could be a new book, it could be a play, it could be children's book. We don't know any old book, but a book that each of my guests absolutely love and they think that you should read. They're going to get three minutes each on the clock later on and they're going to tell us why they love it. But before that, let's talk about your latest projects. And Holly, let's talk about Pretending, which has just come out. And in this book, this is is where you look at the world of online dating. Um, So tell us about April and about her story?
3: Yeah, so we've kind of, trying with the book, I tried to ask the question, is it possible to write a romantic comedy um, about Me Too? Um, And I kind of, I spent many years uh, working for a charity helping young people with their problems and that kind of really... it clear to me that there's a huge epidemic of violence against women um and that's why i've become an ambassador for women's aid since Uh, but when the me too wave kind of hit uh, i just sort of saw a gap in the stories being told about it which is what happens after the trauma when you've had something horrible happen to you and you're kind of recovered to some degree but you you want to fall in love you want to be in a relationship you want to try and be vulnerable which is an incredible thing to want to be um, after experiencing something like that. Um, And so April, the character in my book, is somebody who sort of similar to me, works um, for a charity that helps victims and survivors, but she is actually a survivor herself. And she's just really struggling to find somebody to love her. And she believes that her trauma kind of makes her romantically undesirable. In the moment she opens up to a man and tells him about what happened to her, they're kind of a bit like, I don't want to deal with this. So then it kind of becomes a revenge plot. She decides to just pretend to be the perfect woman called Gretel. And, um, you know, just tries to basically catfish men to to get her own back. And just, of course, they fall in love with this perfect, sexy, funny, trouble-free woman. And she's the whole time thinking, I don't exist and you're an idiot. Um, But of course she then meets a guy that she starts to have feelings for, but he's falling in love with the person that she is not.
2: And is this something that you have found is sort of not talked about perhaps as much as we would think? You know, women who've had a trauma and then want to go out dating and they want to find someone and meet someone and and it's sort of suppressed and they don't want to bring it up because for fear of it, you know, putting off the person they, they, they want to be with?
3: Yeah, I think sort of how your love life and your sex life are impacted Bisexual violence is something that's still kind of shrouded in a lot of mystery and shame, which is um, strange considering the statistics. So one in three young women have been sexually violated by their partner. So that's a third of women. You know, if that's happened to them historically, um, then you're a man on a Tinder day or a Bumble date. One in three women you're dating is sitting across from you in the pub and is thinking, when do I tell them? Do I tell them? Um, how do I explain to them that I might not be able to have sex in this particular way because what happened to me, are they going to go off me? And I just, I think it's a very depressing and dark topic, sexual Mm. violence. It makes people feel very uncomfortable. Um, And I think I wanted, it was important to shine light on it. And I think lots of the stories that are told are stories about recovery or survival, taking somebody to court. Um, And I just kind of wanted to show the love stories because considering it's such an epidemic there are so many you know survivors who do go out there and and put their heart on the line and want to love again and want to try and be loved and so these are just truly remarkable love stories happening um despite these horrible circumstances and I just wanted to kind of sh- have a love story about survivors because they don't they rarely get love stories they kind of only get i survived stories i didn't yeah. let it get me down you kind of don't have laughter and joy and warmth and that's why i wanted it to be framed in a comedy and um, to show that survivors aren't just rocking in the corner <laughs> every day mm-hmm. uh, you know but they they're going out they're really good at their jobs Um, they have great friendships, they can be the funniest person in the room but underneath, you know, they've got this deep trauma um, that they're scared to share and I just wanted to tell that story to hopefully make survivors realise they're not alone. In fact, sadly, they're one in three and so Mm -hmm. that's why I wrote Pretending. I think
2: it was a very very brave decision to, to do that, to tackle, as you say, a sort of a pretty dark subject but from a romcom perspective but you've you've done it absolutely spot on i would say having read it and i loved uh <laughs> the advice in the book um about building the perfect profile where it says um april's talking about having a quirky fact or two and then make the profile interesting but not too interesting <laughs> um and there are little bits in that that sort of rung rung true to friends I know who do dating, but also just you you balanced the comedy with, you know, the serious points very well. And I imagine that was quite hard to do.
3: That was definitely my biggest concern. Um, When I was writing the book, I was like, I know through the the other work that I do and the other fiction that I've written that comedy is an incredible vehicle um, to help people understand difficult topics, to kind of give them entry to, you know, if you're kind of laughing... Uh, you're and having a good time kind of consuming a piece of work then you kind of don't notice sometimes you're actually you know learning something or having your eyes opened to an experience you might not have considered um but in this particular thing you know comedy and then you know sexual violence like can that ever be done but um considering I spent five years working with survivors um I still work with survivors I'm an ambassador for women's aid I interviewed so many psychotherapists Mm. I read every single book there is to read about post-traumatic stress disorder recovery from trauma I just felt as comfortable and confident as I could be to to explore this topic with humor knowing that that would hopefully open up more people to want to engage with this topic and normalize it and reduce shame and I was also very careful to make sure there was no comedy about the sexual violence itself I don't think there is any room for humor in that you know like rape jokes and stuff I'm very very against no. but I just wanted to show that survivors can be funny um they can crack jokes so the the humor is separate from the trauma and I think it's yeah. so important to show that you can you know live a life of both mm.
2: very much so yeah now interestingly in the last uh three minutes um my neighbor upstairs has started uh, to bang a shelf in I think and um the uh, person next door is uh, is taking the time to um, trim the hedge. So um, they have no uh, <laughs> no idea we're recording a podcast in this room, so I apologise for the potential banging and a little bit of the strimmer noise as well that might leak through. But just so you know, it's not me. Um, Harriet, have you ever done the, the online dating thing?
4: I actually haven't, no. It kicked off, I think it sort of took off about six months after I'd met my, my now husband. Um, mm. and without wishing to sound snug, I am constantly grateful that that passed me by or that I passed it by. I have friends who are doing it and um, it sounds really tough. I think lots of people approach it the way they would a job, you know, a a kind of regularity and it's its sort of quantity rather than quality just to get as many people met as possible. Um, I think other people sign that it has com- completely changed how men and women interact with each other and what they want yeah. from each other. Um, I think, I feel like there's a, a reckoning coming in, in a decade or so when we look back and see how we treat each other online generally. But I think dating plays a huge part in how in how gender roles have become so weird.
2: I, I agree. And I've never done it either, actually. Um, I think it, it sort of passed me by... Um, hmm. But it sounds exhausting. <laughs> I mean, yeah, From no, the people I talk to, do it.
4: Yeah, and I think um, I I read Holly's book. I have read it, and I and I just thought it was fantastic. I thought even beyond the the kind of central message and the importance of of, of victims and trauma and and um, overcoming that, it just speaks so well to how men and women interact. And I think I'm obviously I'm biased. I think women know how men treat them but i don't think men know how they treat women sometimes and for that reason i i think that i think your book should be part of the collection and holly i really think that every man should have to read it because i think it would be really eye-opening for them
3: yeah i would love yeah i do have male readers and it's interesting i almost i i think they almost always get in touch when a man has read my book and they always sort of just like whoa i had no idea (laughs) (laughs) i hadn't even thought to consider it and i'm like that's strange in itself yeah (laughs) Um, yeah. so it's uh yeah i do challenge men um in my work um but i have lots of male readers who enjoy being challenged in that way Um, yeah yeah. usually hopefully because i can back it up with you know sort of professional expertise um from my other work but um Mm. yeah it's a shame I wish I had as, male, as many male readers as I did have female readers because I just think it'd be useful for them to kind of consider um, yeah. their behaviour. I remember one man once saying to me, they didn't realise that indifference, romantic indifference is so painful. And I was like, are you kidding? And they're like, yeah, I just didn't realise that women just like, that's one of the most hurtful things. I just thought, well, you know, if you're not bothered about someone, that's fine. But like, women get really upset if you're just not that bothered after mm. you slept with them And I'm like, do you think? Do you <laughs> just,
4: <laughs> like, think indifference that, is painful. I just feel like so much of that behaviour has been um, culturalised in a, in a way that has made women accept it. When you think about those kind of dating manuals from from old, like the, the rules or the game or whatever it was, the way they convinced women to act was just to kind of accept quite terrible behaviour from men, or if not terrible, then just really thoughtless behaviour. And men have never really had to address their side of it. So I think the rules was the one for women, and that was the one, you know, you must never accept a date the first time he asks because then you'll look too desperate, and you must never go on a date. The first three dates can't be over a weekend because you'll look like a loser. You don't have any plans. And, and people, yeah, I guess this is 20 years ago now, but, but people slavishly followed it. Women slavishly mm-hmm. followed these things, whereas men have never really had to consider their end of the bargain.
2: Yeah. And it's interesting you saying, Harriet, about Holly's new book and how it should be on the curriculum. And just a quick note about a previous uh, novel that you wrote, Holly, uh, The Places I've Cried in Public, which was a YA book. And I remember talking to some readers about that particular book and them saying a lot of them with children, both male and female children, saying, oh, I wish my son, I wish my daughter had been able to read this book when they were, you know, teenagers, because... Um, and more so the sons actually because it would have really helped I think set them up
3: oh, yeah, I love it when people say that obviously it's <laughs> nice um, <laughs> um, although you, your worry is always if the moment a book gets put on the curriculum teenagers are like hate you because you are all like <laughs> homework um, you know for the moment you have to have to write an essay about something it can take away the joy but um, <laughs> I do really believe that um, fiction can be a very powerful force for positive social change it's such a kind of irreplicable source of immersive empathy you know you kind of actually hallucinating when you read a book you're immersing Mm -hmm. yourself into the brain of of somebody that doesn't exist and you're feeling their feelings if they feel them and you're experiencing their experiences as you experience them uh, whilst being entertained there's just nothing that is as powerful as that so to me I always try to use my work particularly when I'm writing for teenagers as well because um, they're just so wonderful and malleable at their age and you know the right story at the right time can really alter their life I believe and usually yeah. in a positive direction and, and whilst whilst being entertained so um, I definitely very consciously uh, use my fiction as a means of activism <laughs> but hopefully entertaining people at the same time and I said the moment it gets put on the curriculum though. So, they will not even be able to admit that they're entertained by it. (laughs) (laughs) We'll call it
2: entertaining activism. That's what we'll call it as a genre. Um, Let's talk a little bit about your new novel then, your debut novel coming out in July, Mm -hmm. The New Girl, um, Mm -hmm. about a fashion editor called Margot. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about her and about her friend Maggie? She
4: is, the, the book starts when she is sort of, a third of the way through her first pregnancy and she's at work looking for someone to stand in for her when she's on maternity leave and Maggie is the person she chooses to do that job. She's someone she's um, known through through the industry for a few years already but doesn't know that well um, but she's been uh, keen for it and talented and crucially quite grateful for it.
2: Where did the idea of it come from? Is it is it based a lot on your personal experiences or is it just that you know you wanted to write about what we alluded to earlier about you know your identity as a working woman and mother
4: well I think I've always I've always thought about maternity leave as a very strange sort of time since my friends started having babies I remember thinking well ahead of being pregnant myself thinking that I would find it very difficult to hand over a career that I'd sort of spent 10 years forming um, and watch someone else do it for a little while. And yeah. for a while, I thought maybe that was just me being overly jealous or protective or whatever. But the more people I spoke to and the more friends I had who experienced it, it I think it really is one of the most kind of basic ter- territorial feelings in any person, male or female, um, and so it is a very, very strange emotion that most women will go through at some point, I think. And even if it's not a job that you feel particularly strong about handing over, you're sort of relinquishing your place in the economy almost. You know, when you're on maternity leave or at home and you're not earning money. And um, for most women I know, that's a very, very strange feeling.
2: Did you, I mean, the book isn't out yet, but in, in, in terms of what you were hoping for or what you're wanting your readers to get, Out of it, who are you? Who are you writing it for? Do you think?
4: I think I was probably. I think when I was writing it, I was writing it for myself to keep myself sane, (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, just to sort of get words on a page. Because breaking from work, it was very strange for me. Um, But I, I hope that it speaks to women who have children and who don't have children, or who are about to, or who have decided that they that they might never. Um, I hope that. There's enough in there to do with female ambition, identity, friendship, rivalry, to make it fairly universal, I think. you know Margot is the, the main character, the fashion editor, who goes on, on maternity leave. But Maggie is a, another freelance writer who's a bit younger and just starting off in a new relationship. So I think hopefully there's something in there for everyone. And, and the book, it tries to peel back some of the layers there often are on female friendships in particular. How they are supposed to look from the outside, and sometimes how they make you feel in private.
2: Did you find that your journalistic background, your writing background, helped you to to write the novel, or was that did that become a hindrance? Because because it, it's very different, you know, when you're tackling writing prose in this way.
4: Um, it was it, both. It, it was really handy, I think, to know that if I gave myself a deadline, or rather, if someone else gave me a fake deadline, like my, <laughs> that I could just sit down and and I would get to the end of it. Um, eventually. Um, But yeah, it was really daunting because it seemed, from the beginning, it seemed so vast and so, um, you know, I wasn't kind of referring back to quotes or interviews that I'd done. There was no Mm. research to fall back on apart from my own experiences and those of my friends and and some of the anecdotes I I picked up from other mums while I was on maternity leave.
2: Yeah, I think the whole deadline thing is quite interesting, isn't it? Because, um, (laughs) you know, as a journalists write to deadlines that's the thing and yet and I know authors do too and Holly you'll know this there is there is a deadline set but it seems to me that um journalist deadlines are like this is the deadline Get me the piece, and author deadlines can sometimes be a bit like, okay, well, you can have another couple of weeks then if it's you know if you need it. <laughs> Which so perhaps you're a you know perhaps you're an editor's dream, Harriet. You know coming coming from a journalist background and going, yeah, I'll get it to you on the day you tell me.
4: <laughs> well, amazingly, when I was um at, you know when I first met my agent, she basically said, yeah, it's really nice to know that I'm meeting someone who will finish something. <laughs> yeah, uh, but I think I mean in a, in a way working to deadlines for 10 years has actually broken me i'm now incapable of planning ahead on almost any front i would say you know if someone gives me an article to write and i've got six weeks to do it i will do it two or three days beforehand regardless because i cannot make myself function any earlier than that
2: i'm exactly the same i'm <laughs> exactly the same i'm glad to hear that because it goes i think it goes back to studying as well or whatever mm. or handing in essays at university and things it's like you know when when does it need to be in a midday on this date fine well then you know then it will be there at midday on that date (laughs) and i'll i'll work through the night before Delivering it, you know, that's that's how it is. Yeah. Um, the neighbour has now uh, moved on from a hammer to a sledgehammer and a drill, I think. So this is all going very well upstairs. Holly, if I could just come back to you quickly before we go to the book off. This is your second novel for the adult market. Do you know when you get an idea that, that you're going to write it for a younger audience or if it's for an older audience? or Do you change your mind about when you start writing
3: it? No, I always know before I started When the kind of idea hatches, as it were, Mm. I always know if it's a teen book or an adult book. Um, With me, it's any book I've ever written, it's always the opening line. And that's what comes, like, lands like a kind of the beginning of Dumbo with the stork sort of dropping baby animals. like oh, right. kind of um, <laughs> the way that I've had book ideas is the first line kind of just arrives in my head to the point where if you quizzed me, I could tell you the first line of any of my given books. Because <laughs> um, wow. that to me is the most important thing. And you can kind of and you can tell so much from the first line of a novel, voice, character, setting. And so when that land, I wish I knew what caused them to land from the sky. And I live in constant fear that the stalk will stop dropping first lines into my <laughs> brain. Um, and I don't understand how I do my job or why or how, um, which is scary when it's my livelihood. Um, but I, uh, <laughs> yeah, so I, I can tell by, you know, by by the opening line um if it's going to be. a And with that line, the moment it's in my head, I've sort of then kind of. So it kind of transcend into that character's life it's a very weird immersive experience the way that i write fiction so i know already if i'm a teenager or if i'm a grown-up when i'm right. kind of providing the vessel for them telling their story i sound crazy <laughs> um, but it's fine if you're in a creative job you can just say crazy stuff. <laughs> uh, but, um, that's fascinating so, yeah.
2: to know about the first lines
3: yeah, but it's just always been the way. So, you know, um, mm. and then with Pretending, the first line came to me and it was, I hate men, um, <laughs> which is a mixture of hate speech and the build up to or I hope was a good punchline by the end of the first chapter. But, you know, I hate men. You already know it. it's an adult book because she's using the word men rather than boys. And and the same with like Places I Cried in Public, one of my teen books. The opening line was Can You See the Girl Crying? And already you're in a different sphere you know, it's the word girl, she's crying, that's something you kind of usually relate to younger behaviour and and everything sort of emerges from that. It's, it's very hard to talk about the creative process without sounding mm. like vaguely psychotic, but <laughs> that, that's how it works for me. And um, That's fine. And the, themes, you know. the themes flood in from the first line and if you're in a 33-year-old's head, obviously the themes are going to be quite different from a 16-year-old's. You know, they're less worried about GCSEs, you're more worried about... You know, your job, whether or not you're going to get married, when to have children, how that's going to impact your life. You know, you don't care about mm. the levers ball anymore. Whereas when you're 16, that's the most important thing on your social <laughs> calendar. So you just kind of transcend into whoever's brain has arrived in your own brain and, and tell their story. <laughs>
2: Before we um, find out what you've brought to the table for Book Off, I have just one question for both of you because a few episodes ago uh, in one of the Book Offs, I was talking to Lisa Jewell and she said that she always gets... No, hang on. <laughs> Which way round did she say? I think she said she always gets the title first before she writes anything. She always has the title of the book. Oh, she's wow. On. And I just wondered how that was for both of you. Does that come later or does it change halfway through the process? What What's the deal with titles? Harriet, you go first.
4: Oh, no, mine came much later. My The new girl actually had a working title that was rather more kind of logical. <laughs> <laughs> After it was sent out for submission. Um, nothing rude, just sort of weirdly medical, but it worked for me while I was writing it. It was premi gravida, which is what you're called at, by doctors when you're in your first pregnancy. And then I looked it up online and it was, it, it was in a sort of a, a fusty medical dictionary and it was described as um, your first burden. And I thought, yeah, that is, that's what it felt like.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: Um, so that was the working title. And then the new girl came along afterwards. So it, it works it sort of speaks to lots of different characters in in the book, I think.
2: Yeah, yeah. And and what about you, Holly, with with titles? I'm guessing if it's all about the first line, the title just, comes later on
3: it's different for, for each book I think my advice would be to any writer don't get too emotionally attached to your title because there's some books I've written where I was convinced that was a title and then my publishers have been like this that's very nice but no um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and you get it changed and you know that's part of the letting go process of the privilege of getting your work published is you kind of have to hand over your story with its title and and trust that you're not the expert in what makes somebody pick up in a bookshop and that sort of thing. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, I still mourn, the title that I mourn the most is my first adult book, How Do You Like Me Now? I had always called it the whole way through the process when the music stops because it's about uh, turning mm-hmm. 30 and one of the characters is just like, oh, turning 30 is a bit like playing musical chairs like the music stops and everyone just marries whoever they happen to be sitting on so I thought when the music stops was good for that metaphor and it's also about somebody realizing that a relationship after a long amount of time is not working and that's sort of like I was like the music's like their love and when that stops and the party ends and all and I was like and yeah my my publisher were like yeah no that's you know that metaphor but like mrs blogs and tesco trying to pick up a paperback when a weekly shop does not aware of all the incredible metaphors you come up to do with the game of musical chairs like so, yeah i was overridden um so, but sometimes I get them. Uh, the places I've cried in public, like straight away, my publisher like, well done. That is a good title. We'll have that one, to you. that one. Keep that
2: one. You can keep that one, <laughs> and we're very glad you did. And if it if it makes you feel any better, I think Harriet and I both love when the music stops as well, even though you didn't get to use it. Thank
4: Absolutely. you. it was very good. <laughs>
0: Let's get this dinner party started.
2: It's time for the book off now. This is where each of you gets three minutes to tell us uh, all about a book that you absolutely love, why you love it and why we should read it. Um, So before we start, let's find out what you've both brought. Harriet, which book are you going to be talking about today?
4: Mine is The Tenant of Wildfell Hall by Anne Bronte.
2: Wow. OK, so this is, we're talking um, 1900s here for this book, aren't we? Yeah, it's, I think it's 1848 uh, and mm-hmm. it's,
0: set, know, it's
4: set in 1827.
2: And Holly, what about you? What are you putting forward?
3: Uh, it's very different, actually. It's non-fiction and very modern. I'm putting forward Three Women by Alicia, Lisa Taddeo, I think that's how you pronounce it. Tadio, Taddeo,
2: yeah, which was uh, published last year.
3: Yes, so as new so as is, you can get. Almost.
2: 170 years between these two books, then. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so we need to decide who's going to go first and who's going to go second, and we also need to decide who would like the uh horn when the time is up or who is going to take the bell. So, um, Harriet, would you like to go first or second?
4: Um, can I go first, please?
2: You absolutely can, uh, and that means Holly, it's over to you to decide. Which of these implements you would like for your time up?
3: I'll I'll take the horn. I'm a big fan of a clown horn. Excellent.
2: Okay, very good. Right, that means that you've got the bell then, Harriet. Okay, so I'm putting three minutes on the clock. You don't have to use all three if you don't want to. If you've said all you need to in two, two and a half minutes, that's fine. But uh, the moment you hit uh, three... I'm going to be ringing you out. OK, and I've been told off the last few episodes uh, that I just cut people down in their prime. And I'm very cruel. I'm like a head teacher. But that's the game. OK, so if you're still talking at three, I'm going to cut you off. But that's the fun of it. So it's over to you then to tell us why you love and why we should read The Tenant of Wildfell Hall. OK, thank you. The
4: Tenant of Wildfell Hall is uh it's fabulous. It's about a young widow who moves into a rural uh, community of farmers and this grouping that she comes under as we begin to learn a bit more about her potentially quite murky past. Um, It's it's the first 19th century novel I had read in years after university I took a bit of a breather and I was worried that my Twitter era attention span just wouldn't be up to following those sentences with all those clauses but and this is partly the reason I chose it. today, it's so contemporary and it's so absorbing. From the word go, um, I was really surprised by it. So, it deals with um, it deals with so much that is so modern. It's it's about coercive relationships. It's about substance abuse. Um, it's about to- toxic masculinity. About how to raise boys. Uh, but mostly, I suppose, that mostly it's about how society scrutinizes women. Um, how we treat single women or women who are alone, generally. It's about how single men treat single women. Um, but it's also about what women tend to tend to lose when they make bad choices in their private life. Um, I think there are lots of... There are lots of Victorian novels that have a bad rep for being a bit a bit fussy or a bit abstract. And as much as I love Jane Eyre and Ring Heights, I know people who find them... A bit gaudy or a bit melodramatic, um, but Wildfire Hall is really contemporary um, and, and it's just a really good mystery. It's a, it's a really complex love story as well. Um, it's about men, it's about, it's about the, the right men and the wrong men, it's about children, it's kind of a domestic noir avant the label and um, it talks about the darkest corners of home and marriage and whether we might make the same mistakes as Helen Graham does in the book. Um, But it's got this romance angle as well, and there's a kind of chance for renewal. So I think it has a bit of everything. And I just, the main thing is how fresh I think it feels, given that, as you say, we're reading reading it a long time after it was written.
2: Fantastic. That was very good and very concise, Harriet. You still had uh, 25 seconds to go there, so... uh... Excellent work. That was great. We're going to come back and talk to you a little bit more about the Ambronte, but you can have a breather now and a little rest. Um, I'm putting three minutes back on the clock now for you, Holly, uh, to tell us about Three Women by Lisa So,
3: Three Women is just one of the most incredible pieces of journalism, long-term journalism, in that it's a whole book um, and I've ever uh, read. And she basically spent several, several years... Um, following three women and interviewing these three women um, about their sort of sexual desires and their sex lives, um, and the just the insight that she gets into these women's psyches is just absolutely insane. Um, I just don't understand how she managed to get such sensitive thought processes from them. And it's so for those three women. One is a woman called Lena, whose husband just physically will not touch her. And so she ends up leaving her marriage and getting um, having an affair with an old high school sweetheart. Then there's a girl called Maggie who was sort of groomed and sexually abused by her teacher and then she takes him to court and he's found uh, not guilty and then made teacher of the year in a local town. He wins an award for teacher of the year and there's a a lady called Sloane who um, swings with her husband. And although these sound a lot about sex, the book is really about the psychology of female desire and it's just... I've just never ever read a book that made me feel so uncomfortable in what the truths that it was telling. It was one of those books where like I feel so seen and so like freaked out. Um, like this book's so in- like insightful, and yet I don't want to admit that to anybody because then they might know something about me. And I don't know how she managed to get these women um, to to share so much, but it's just an incredible feat. And then she just writes it so beautifully and I think the thing that really resonated with me and it made me really ask a lot of questions about female psychology um, and myself is how much of female desire is sort of caught up in wanting to be chosen by a man um, that so much of your desire like your own desire comes from being desired and you kind of ask the question well is that genetics or is that a societal construct Is just if you want to kind of have a book club um, you just there's so much that you can get involved in um, I just had never seen these stories told before and, and then I'd never seen it done so well and written so beautifully and I met her actually and just scared her with the, my enthusiasm at a party and I think she probably <laughs> would make out for restraining all of so like you're so talented and I'm just going to finish with a quote I hope I have enough time that just I feel sums up just how intrusive this book is in telling the truth about how women love so here it is Throughout history, men have broken women's hearts in a particular way. They love them, or half love them, and then grow weary and spend weeks and months extricating themselves soundlessly, pulling their tails back into their doorways, drying themselves off, and never calling again. Meanwhile, women wait. The more in love they are, and the fewer options they have, the longer they wait, hoping that he (laughs) will... And say, I'm sorry. I'll stop.
2: You can, you can finish it. You can finish it. Go on. We There's want to hear still the four
3: the more sentences.
2: <laughs> go for it. Go on. Um, we'll let you have it. We'll
3: he said, he'll say, I'm sorry, I was buried alive and the only thing I thought of was you and feared that you would think I'd forsaken you when the truth is only that I lost your number. It was stolen from me by the men who buried me alive and I've spent three years looking in phone books and now I have found you. I didn't disappear. Everything I felt didn't just leave. You're right to know that that would be cruel and unconsciousable and impossible. Marry me.
2: <laughs> That's <was> a good <laughs> quote to, to finish the pitch. Thank you very much, Holly. Take a breath. Relax for a moment. Harriet, thank you for your brilliant pitch. I haven't read The Tenet of Wildfell Hall, although I have heard of it from many people. <laughs> And you were a literature student, you were an English student, weren't you, um, at university? So you were sort of saying you'd left that 19th century literature behind for a while because you were probably sick of it after three years of studying. Um, (laughs) But I loved that you have said how contemporary it is that the issues raised in it of sort of about women, about the way we treat women, about substance abuse, toxic masculinity, you know, all these things that are still recurring in novels today um it's it's actually weirdly refreshing to know that they were being written about in 1848
4: (laughs) absolutely and that was what really hooked me from the beginning i could hardly believe it it had been written so long ago and i actually wonder whether had i read it at university in the early noughties or in the 90s maybe it, it wouldn't have felt there was a sense that a lot of that stuff was was dealt with or had been dealt with or we fixed it and Maybe it's to do with online and you know dating apps or whatever, but we haven't. And that conversation feels more relevant than ever, really. And the fact that someone was talking about it in 1847 is just amazing. And Anne Bronte was actually, I think, you know, she wrote it under a pseudonym. She wrote it as a kind of uh, a gender-neutral and bell. And she was hauled through the newspapers for it. It was really scandalous at the time. So she has written it There's a preface to the edition that I, that I read. And she says, "If I've prevented one girl from falling into the very natural error of my heroine, the book has not been written in vain." And that just made me think again, actually, of Holly's book of pretending, and how messages in literature are so important for women because it's it's just it's a really important way to explore feelings, but also the consequences of actions that we might not realise we shouldn't take. If that makes sense. Mm.
2: And I think Victorian books do get a bad rep sometimes certain ones and (laughs) um, (laughs) hearing you talk about this one just makes me think god I really I mean I just want to pick it up now honestly you
4: know the the setup of it and and also the kind of structure it goes between the it's seen through the young a young local man who meets her meets the widow when she moves into his village and then the middle section is her diaries looking back on what's happened to her and actually that kind of format is how lots of thrillers are structured now as well so it it really does feel like a modern book I
2: think well it sounds great and it was a great pitch I do really want to pick that up and Holly again another brilliant pitch for um Lisa Tadeo and Three Women a book I don't know I must admit I'm uh, I'm afraid it passed me by last year I haven't read it and it sounds incredible (laughs) um both from the sense of the the journalistic side of it and the writing which you described so brilliantly and and said how beautifully the book is actually written but also from just that sort of uncomfortable and opening the door onto three women's psyches and and really sort of learning the (laughs) warts and all about them
3: It was, yeah, it was just incredibly, incredibly insightful book. I remember when I'm, I used to be a news journalist many, many years ago, and I remember at journalism school, um, one of our lecturers opened a lecture once with, with a story that you will never, ever, ever be able to get. As a journalist, is a woman talking to you about not really wanting to have sex with her husband or anything to do with her sex life? There, like that's the impossible story, Um, Mm. and just so you know, the fact that Lisa managed to find three women—I think it took her nine years—and she travelled all over America to source these women, and so many of them then dropped out at the last minute. And you know, it was just—it's an incredible feat to not only um, win over their trust but get them to tell the most inner secrets of the way that their desire works and mm. um, it's a book that has had it, it has done very well I think it was a Sunday Times bestseller but it's really been a Marmite book and some people really really hate it and I believe they hate it because they don't like what it made them feel it's kind of too <laughs> honest that it's I, I don't know I feel like when you have a strength of a response that no BD has basically been in the middle lane about this book and i do think the people are just like oh it's just awful it's like it's like no it just makes you too uncomfortable because you don't <laughs> want to admit that this is the truth I, am i
4: allowed to briefly inhabit the middle lane <laughs> i i did think it was brilliant i thought it was really the the like you say all the research and the kind of background to it's really well written it's so needed and so necessary but my only quibble was it was that if you are you know, unearthing female desire properly for what feels like the first time in a book. It just seemed really sad that actually none of the sex was viewed through a very positive prism. I thought it was all to do. It was all kind of generated by sadness somehow. I thought, and what I what I wondered whether it was, I wondered whether it was missing a, a woman who was kind of having a nice time in bed.
3: <laughs> I- I think that is a fair thing and I, I did go as I said I, I scared her over my intensity um, of fandom, <laughs> and I went to um, a talk with her and um, I think she was trying to find that story but it was actually just so hard to source yes. people who are willing to share because another fair criticism of the book is that everyone in the in the book is white and she wasn't able to source you know talk to anyone of color and it was Mm -hmm. she was like I actually did have some interviews I spent you know six months with them in Florida and then at the last minute they they balked. um Yeah. yeah so it would be so interesting to read a book about this book about are women only willing to talk if there is some sort of trauma that they could kind of maybe use as an excuse to then express this dark side of themselves it's just fascinating I just found the fascination of the story she managed to get to that point and how Mm. and why like I almost wanted to read a companion novel about the actual act of her researching it and writing it because it wasn't that she wasn't looking for these stories it's just again it's so hard to get them.
2: Well they both sound fascinating these books um, and I want to read them both so thank you for bringing them to our attention and anyone listening who's read them will have their own opinions of course but you might have just uh, sold a few more copies of each to some people listening those books that we were talking about uh, Three Women by Lisa Tadeo which was Holly's Choice and The Tenant of Wildfell Hall by Anne Bronte which was Harriet's Choice and uh, Pretending by Holly Bourne is published by Hodder and Storton and it's out now and The New Girl by Harriet Walker is also published by Hodder and it'll be available in July it's coming out then and it's available to Order now, of course. I, I should say that um, we're on a sort of lockdown hiatus with with a winning book, where every week it's a draw until we're out of lockdown. So um, <laughs> I'll give you both one of those. You're both winners today. Thank uh, you and emotionally
3: also... ups and vulnerable to not yeah, win.
2: Yeah, we can't we can't have anyone can't have anyone losing. So
0: I agree.
2: I will just say that the uh, the bell and the horn, which are used um, for every single podcast we do, have come into their own very recently uh, because every Thursday. I'm going out to the balcony to um, to clap. NHS and our and all our frontline workers and I've taken to to bringing the bell and the horn out with it and the neighbours are absolutely <laughs> loving it. I can tell you, it's, a, it's added a whole new layer to the NHS clap.
4: know <laughs> yeah, it's like a one man band.
2: It's a bit, yeah. <laughs> um, Harriet Holly, it's been an absolute pleasure spending this afternoon with you, despite the banging and the hedge cutting. <laughs> it's been great talking to you both. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, thank you, and thank you as always for listening and supporting book off and if you're on instagram or twitter or facebook then do please follow us you can find us at the handle oh do book off and tell your friends spread the love it's always really appreciated and we love getting new followers and fans until next time bye for now
1: Go to slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns.
0: Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello?